Now on January 6, 2012, the Brisbane Heat hosted the Hobart Hurricanes. According to Trick Buzz, he's named as a batting all-rounder. We'll be catching all the big moments on KO Sports. The amount of potency in Clive Rose's <laughs> voice and his mere presence. I do enjoy cricket. <laughs> <laughs>Friday, 5th of July. Welcome back for another episode of State of Play. We are getting towards the pointy end of the World Cup now. The top four is locked in. I'm Alistair Belling. And I'm Miles Cadet. We're, no. we're here to... Sorry, Miles, I cut you off there. No, no. We're, here to, we're here to talk you through what's going to be hopefully a thrilling final week of action after, I would argue, a fairly lacklustre penultimate week of festivities. Look, can I just say, we've talked... Like, the theme of our show for the last, like three weeks has been can someone else break into the top four and i'd like to say just by the way that i called pakistan (laughs) from i think they were only on one point at the time one win i believe at the time that you called it yeah or maybe yeah yeah Yeah, you're right there are three points so one they got their first win i think against afghanistan and then um, england of course, they, they beat England yeah. and they had a washout at some point and they were on three points, I think. That's crazy. And I said, you know what? They've got they've got a good run of games home. They might just be able to do it. And uh, sadly, things didn't turn out for them. And it's a bit disappointing just because it it seems so right. It, se- it, seemed like, it seemed like the narrative had come like full circle, like Pakistan were building momentum, England were losing momentum. Well, and man, it just I would, wasn't meant to be. I would even say not so much... Like with the whole Pakistan most likely not being able to make it anymore. When, when we're recording this, mm. for listeners' sake, uh, ba- Bangladesh and Pakistan are about to square off in what literally could have been the game of the tournament. Oh my goodness! But yeah, it's now it's now like a it's a very Harry Potter Gryffindor v Slytherin in the <laughs> final of as of Prisoner no, of Azkaban. I was, I, if, if you want to bring it to Harry Potter, I I. I compare it more to the scenario in which um, Fred and George bet on Victor Crumb to catch the snitch but for Bulgaria to lose. Oh, it's absolutely. that kind of level of unlikelihood. It's a very it's a very niche uh, thing that we're facing here. It could it could happen to be fair. Now something that is h- hilarious about this whole setup. So basically what's happening is because New Zealand lost to England yesterday, New Zealand are basically a lock due to their high net run rate, which they really achieved in their first couple mm. of games, namely against Sri Lanka, where I think they smashed their 120-odd in about 12 balls. Yep. And this is what annoys me about the way that this tournament is formatted with this net run rate thing, because New Zealand, by absolutely no means, deserve to be in the semifinals, in my opinion. No, I mean, they're a bit like... Um I don't know, Manchester United of the last couple of years. Like, they're just getting their points against the lower teams. I would even argue they're like South Africa 99 in that they've had a couple of people carrying everyone else. But aside Mm. from that, they've been incredibly ordinary. So, Jimmy Neesham comes to mind. The big all-rounder coming in, I think he bats at seven, if I'm not mistaken. He's batted anywhere between five and seven. Exactly. Well, yeah, Jimmy Neesham, Tom Latham's had to do the legwork a little bit. Apart from, you know, Kane Williamson. I mean, obviously, obviously Williamson. Yeah, but New Zealand up the top there have been absolutely rubbish. I think the worst, like the lowest total of runs between their openers of any team. Yeah, hundred percent. It's real. It's it's just lame to watch, and it's so predictable what's going to happen. Plus, Santana just gets nothing from the pitch, and that's not necessarily his fault. But you know, when that's your frontline spinner going in, yeah, I'm not I, convinced. Look, he's he's obviously not filling Vittori's shoes in that left arm orthodox mold, but I think he is underrated, and he has controlled the game 
in those middle late middle overs better than anyone else, I think, other than um, maybe Nisham yeah. <laughs> with the ball. Yeah, I think Nisham is actually a fantastic, uh, you know, middle shift bowler. And, and he's really come through in this tournament. I think he's been... He's been Brilliant, as he showed against England, actually. But we'll, we'll get to that game. And I, this is the thing about net run rate. We should have a discussion about about net run rate. We might have our point four friend on to talk about net run rate. Well, we actually point. had a in in the Big Bash season. We had a Miles's corner segment where I explained net run rate. It's not actually that complicated, but essentially what it does is it overly rewards bowling out other teams to the point where New Zealand's net run rate blew out at the start of the um, competition and. Like, it was just unassailable, even though they've had some really close wins. Like, basically every other game they've won, they've won narrowly. Oh, by the skin of their teeth. Particularly against the West Indies comes to mind, which yeah, is which yeah. still my game of this tournament Yeah, that, that, that was a cracker. Um, but this is the thing, like, it net run rate doesn't actually really reflect um, their performance. And so there's been chat amongst um, kind of stats people in cricket circles that we should have other modes of um, doing tiebreakers. And one, one that I've seen interestingly is because um, the, the tiebreaker at the moment is wins ahead of um, ahead of net run rate, so just total wins. Right. But we're in a scenario where um, because Sri Lanka had faced so many washouts, this is, a, this is a, a few games ago, this scenario, they're in a scenario where they could have ended up quite easily on fourth um, tied with England, but um, ha- had Sri Lanka won their last game and England lost their last game, which both plausible scenarios. And Sri Lanka would have actually ended up with a better um, win ratio, but because two games were washed out, they couldn't have... Um, so anyway... The, the, the and no reserve days. A suggestion was to make win ratio the, the key tiebreaker, which is an interesting... It's a very interesting suggestion. But speaking of games that... When did not necessarily go the way we hoped they would for the sake of the tournament. Let's let's <laughs> that was let's, to be my big lead in. Let's go back to it Sunday wasn't too night. <laughs> nah, all good. We'll go back to Sunday night where England faced India um, in in an alternate strip. Which do, do, should we in, just talk that the kid uh, over a bit? I love India's alternate strip. Now there's a really really beautiful YouTube video up online of, I think, India playing New Zealand at Eden Park in 2012, I think it is. And India is wearing a strip very similar to this. New Zealand quite dark navy with an orange highlight. The orange highlight, mm. which I think is a fantastic addition. It's very it's very Australia 99, 2000s. And in this video, I believe, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's it could be Dhoni or Kohli hitting like four sixes off the first over. New, Ze- New Zealand, for the record, if anyone wants to go back and look at this, just type in India hit four sixes off first over of T20. New Zealand's wearing a fantastic beige and black and teal combo strip. But India's strip, absolutely. I think after Sri Lanka's strip, it was it's my favourite strip. That the question in mind for me is, cricket clearly is not the kind of sport where it matters <laughs> if you can't tell the difference between the, the players because one team's batting and one team's bowling and it's obvious who's who. The cynical part of me wants to just say, is this just the Indian cricket team grabbing at money? By selling more, you know, merch. selling selling the the kind of the rare away kit. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, South Africa's done a similar thing. It doesn't seem right to me to have an away kit for a Cricket World Cup either. Like, I feel like Cricket World Cup, you know, teams often have their special kits just for that. I guess India less so. Like mm. their kit throughout the 03 to 07 era was largely the same and didn't change for a World Cup. 
But when you look at a country like Australia or Sri Lanka or particularly South Africa, who've been, they're very uh, 90s alternate fashion when it comes to their World Cup kits. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel like just, yeah, just stick with the one. However, it was very beautiful on the eyes, as I'm sure was this game to a lot of non-Indian fans. Yeah, well, England's uh, top order finally got it right. About time. Johnny Besto. Johnny, yeah, century. Johnny Besto making <laughs> a runner ball, 111. Certainly... Um, a bit of a breakthrough for him. I think he's he's struggled this tournament. Jason Rory returned, I believe, from injury mm-hmm. that game with a very assured 66. And um, by the time the openers were out, England were two for 205, 31 overs down. They were looking at around about 380. Um, but some late wickets and some good hitting from Ben Stokes took them to seven for 337, which... That's a very substantial total, Huge and particularly total. with the way that um, the pitches have been slowing in the second half of games, chasing has just been a very difficult task this World Cup. But it wasn't looking that difficult for mm. India until our man Dhoni came to the crease and essentially, again, I'm going to argue, stuffed it up for the Indians. Look, I, I don't think it was quite as bad as some of his innings have been. Um, he, he, like... <laughs> He was going at more than a runner ball, and sometimes he's come out with the run rate required at seven or eight, and he's gone at kind of fifty or sixty strike rate. That's true. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember which which game that was in. Well, I mean, World Cup semi final 2015. Oh, I mean, that's, the most that's, famous that's example the, of that. The famous example. But but I mean, it was still confusing to me because I think it was about the 37th over. India needed, you know, seven or eight and over still, which is a lot, but it's it's incredibly doable. And Dhoni was just, you know, knocking it to fielders, taking the singles, not trying to pick the gaps at all, sending uh, Rishabh Pant back a few times, even though an easy single mm, was on offer mm. to hog the strike. Something incredibly confusing is going on with Dhoni and the Indian cricket board, and I do you know, what, like when I when I think of players like Jasprit Bumrah and Rishabh Pant, and even Kale Rahul, who is potentially maybe a bit more of that you know <laughs> traditional Hashim Amla style one day player from the noughties, mm. MS Dhoni just does not seem to have any team interests at heart. There, I'm actually quite angry about yeah, this. Yeah, well, it's it. <laughs> this is the thing. If Australia um, has been relying on their top order, then I think it's only more so the case for India down to. Um, three and four with Coley there. Pant came in at four. Um, never really particularly got going, but um, yeah, it's the, I don't know what Donny's doing really. I think um, he's in this weird scenario where um, he's used to playing his way of playing and no one's kind of bold enough in the Indian cricket setup to tell him what's what. I, I like... It, it, it's a bit disgusting. Yeah. Really. Like, so it, I'll give you the numbers, by the way. So he comes out at six, four down India are. Uh, by the way, after Rohit Sharma's fourth century of the tournament, which and is wasn't, it wasn't outrageous. It wasn't even his... Was that was that his last? No. It, that oh, the, oh, you're right. This is his third century because he scored one since. Scored one since then as well. My bad. We'll come back to... We'll come to that, though. Um, Dhoni comes in at six. The score is four for 226, 39.1 overs, 111 required. So it is just over 10 and over, yeah. to be fair. Okay. that. But again, to be fair, you have the time. Yeah. And a few big overs there p- puts the pressure right back on the English attack. I would say um, Liam Plunkett is 
probably England's most threatening bowler in terms of how he moves the ball. Obviously, Josh Joffre Archer can make it nip around mm. in about 145 clicks. But he's the man you go after. A few big overs there. And aside from Plunkett, I don't think there's anything that you have to be overly worried about in the English attack because, as we know, if England don't get it right with their batting, they're really a one-trick pony, I think. Yeah. And their bowling doesn't necessarily have the most defensive uh, <laughs> capabilities. I think Wokes has had some really good spells this tournament. Um, but he's more hit and miss than I think he'd like to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I think there are some consistency issues there. But mm. hey, look, the, the Poms got away with it. Slash, Donny gave it to them. Arguably, we'll, we'll never know. But most likely, mm. we'll. See, I mean, mm. we will see those two nations now in action in the semi-finals. So time will tell. I think that's guaranteed. Actually, I think New, Ze- New Zealand can't do any better than fourth. So absolutely. Oh, <laughs> actually, Australia does need to beat. South Africa first, but we'll, yeah, that's, we will come to we'll that. come to those games. Um, well, there was a bit of a sandwich of um, of interesting games with Sri Lanka taking on the West Indies. Um, at this point, were Sri Lanka confirmed knocked out? Yeah, I believe sure. that that was an absolute because, because England won. Sri Lanka were confirmed knocked out. Sri Lanka out. Were, were were done. And so, so I I have a little suggestion here mm. for these kind of games. You know, just to, just to save our listeners' time for <laughs> games that they obviously don't care about, I would suggest let's just rate the teams that have bowed out when we come to them yep. in them in their matches and get, we'll give them, I don't know, an, an, an A to F or we'll give them a, an, a, an album analogy to compare <laughs> them to. Who knows? So I, I would say this is there's no better place to start than here because I didn't watch any of this game. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what happened in this game aside from a, I'm assuming Malinga tried to do some Yorkers and Cottrell did a few salutes. Well, um, it's more it's a more interesting game than you might suggest. Sri Lanka got 338 and oh, West Indies nearly chased it down 315 oh, thanks classic. to Huran, who's been playing pretty well. Classic West Indian style. Okay, right? how, what, how do you rate Sri Lanka's tournament and I'll rate the Windies? Well, I think what you said about Sri Lanka, that they're, they're due for something spectacular once every three years. I think that ratio of inconsistency really played out in this tournament because they looked absolutely garbage at the start of this tournament and maybe found their stride a tiny bit as time went on. Maybe it was once there. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but... The Sri Lankan team actually had a bit of off-field ter- turmoil. So no swimming pool was provided them at their hotel. Oh, yeah, and they yeah, kicked yeah, up yeah, a stink yeah. about this and even boycotted a press conference, I believe it was after their clash against Australia. Nothing like Sri Lanka and off-field drama, oh, really. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the, the, the Ranatunga influence continues to this day. Um, but then they they got moved hotels, they got given a pool, and then they beat England in the first game <laughs> after that. So, you know, it, it's all... The man, the myth, the Sri Lankan... Well, the Sri Lankan men, the myth, wh- whatever you want to call it. I'll give... Oh, man. I'll give him an, a D minus, purely because I think there's, there's been some great individual performances. But, like, they're just... They're, a lot of them are really fat. Like, I don't want to fat shame here, <laughs> but, like... I mean, they're professional athletes. <laughs> no, but they've, they've had issues with this. The Sri Lankan cricket board actually told their their cohort essentially contracted players that they need to improve their fitness or risk losing their contracts. <laughs> so I think I think there's a bit of complacency seeping into the and just like general angst seeping into the Sri Lankans. If that's how you're talking about the Sri Lankans, when we get to Afghanistan, <laughs> oh, man. we'll see. There's some, serious, about. there's some serious issues there. Well, the uh, West Indians have had, I think, a fairly similar tournament. Um, 
The uh, there's not much to talk about in terms of the cricket is a thing. I think the biggest highlight for West Indies is the way that sh- um, uh, yeah, Sheldon Cottrell kind of captured the imagination of <laughs> of a younger audience with really his, with his salute. Honestly, like super disappointing performances. Oh. Like a lot of like decent looking thirties, the middle order, but uh, between Shy Hope, Hentmeyer, and Paran, I really think there's a decent like and, and Holder as well. Yeah, to an extent. I mean Holder had a pretty rubbish tournament. He bowled well against India, which we'll, we'll get to. But um, uh, honestly, like it's uh, it's disappointment all around for the West Indies. It's they're a team of rock stars that like never fired at the same time together. They they they. It's a super group. It was, it was gone wrong. Yeah. It's audio slave. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know Chris who audio Cornell slave is, but Chris Cornell. Oh gee, I hope I'm right here. Yeah. Tom Morello and a couple of other famous <laughs> musos and they never released a good record. That's the thing. They could have they could have notched two or three more wins if they all fired together and all slumped together. They should have been in Australia, to be fair. They should have been in Australia. And, and they and they very nearly beat New Zealand, right? So it just it just, none of the pistons working they're not a they're not a well-oiled machine and in the end it uh took them down to second from the bottom on the table <laughs> as things stand let's move on um bangladesh facing india in a <laughs> the uh, subcontinental local grudge match i mean look the, the bangladesh did not play badly at all here. Mm. And to Bangladesh's credit, okay, Bangladesh is like Leighton Hewitt when he had that crazy run in the Australian Open when he made the final in all those five-set games. Yeah. But they've never quite been able to pull it off. It, even when Hewitt was ranked number one, I felt, and honestly, I can see Bangladesh just having a streak of form in the next couple of years and Absolutely. rising to number one. Absolutely. I think, I think Bangladesh have actually had a really good tournament. And even when Hewitt was number one, he always felt like he was going to lose. Like he, <laughs> he always felt like the underdog. He was playing Marat Safin and Andy Roddick and stuff. Like Andre Agassi. Yeah, yeah. They always felt better, even if they were ranked 10, 20 places below him. Yeah. Look, you, you, like you never, you never like feel like the Tigers are an absolute shoo-in. Mm. But, like, they've played such positive cricket. And I wanted them to beat India so badly. But Jasper Bumrah is just the most magnificent bowler. And the way that he cleaned up the Bangladeshi innings when they were chasing around about the 330, mm, mm. I believe. 314 for Three. nine India made off the back of, yeah, Sharma's fourth century. Oh, uh, unbelievable. Uh, like, I, I would say it's probably the best batting performance that I've ever seen in a World Cup that I could, that I can think of straight away. From him? Well, no, just in general. Like from the team or from the individual? Just, just from an individual player purely with the bat. You know, oh. like, you know like Lance Clues in 99, I would say oh. it's the best all-round performance. Honestly, Damien Martin in the 03. World Cup final in 03. Ponting made the century, but Martin was just but that's one off ga- the hook. But that's one game though. Like Sharma's averaging, like he must be averaging 80-odd. In, oh, this in terms Cup. of this tournament, yeah, he's, his his numbers are off the chain. I'll I'll just pull them up for you actually. And uh, this is the thing: India are just capable of winning games like straight away, like in the in the first twenty thirty overs. But their middle and lower order just keeps slowing things keeps down right when they need to accelerate. Every time, it's it's they they really don't make the most of the death. But then they have bowlers like mm. Bumrah who are able to keep things so tight and ex- execute. Such incredible Yorkers. Yeah. Like, 
right up there with Mitchell Stark yeah. and Malinga in terms of just the way that he's able to pull it off, the way he's able to execute his plan. And right when it mattered as well. 100%. I, I think Stark can face criticism for occasionally not doing it when it matters most, especially in the white, in, in the whites <laughs> with yeah, the red ball. Absolutely. He's, he's and, um, a bit. But uh, yeah, Boomer has just been doing it when it counts and he did it when it counted in the tests against us as well. Just the numbers on Rohit, by the way, 544 runs for him at, at 90 just pipping 542 from Shakib, which shows how good Shakib has been. Absolutely, he's kept up with the guys. How, how old is Shakib? Like, for we can we can leave this in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shakib Al Hassan. What do you reckon? I reckon before I find he's it, he's got a baby face. He always okay. Every time he hits a hundred, he just looks so gleefully proud of himself what's but your, in, what's in your a guess? non-arrogant way I reckon he's 32 he's 32 he's thir- yeah. be- beautiful we're going to see I'm sure we'll see Shakib <laughs> in India in 2023 I think I think I think Bangladesh I mean often it did fall to Shakib and Tamim Iqbal to do most of the grunt work with the bat but I think there's some incredibly positive signs mm. uh, from their young guns as and, well and they certainly can hold their heads high out of this game against India falling short in the end just scoring 280 um, odd, which was 30, 30 a short. So after and that, we had one England, spell from Bumaru was enough to take it away. I would say yeah. this was, uh, I mean, anything could have still happened had England lost this game. If I mean, if England had lost this game, they would have, would, would they have well, then definitely crushed out? Pakistan would be batting, not definitely, but Pakistan would be batting to knock them out. No, if England had lost this game against New Zealand, I'm pretty sure Bangladesh, Pakistan would have been potentially no because Bangladesh game. lost to India okay so um but still yeah yeah they they could have Bangladesh could have got to equal points yeah but still this game again it all went right for England New Zealand weren't able to get the early well okay they weren't able to get the early breakthrough but then I believe England lost about five for 60 odd after their top four or even top three I don't think they made a score above 40. In the English batting lineup, well, it I, it was a really impressive fight back, really good captaincy. I thought so. England, uh, for those who didn't get catch the scores, England batted first and made eight for three hundred and five. Johnny Bester with another runnable hundred that just sort of like came up, up out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Like all of a sudden, he's like lifting the lead. He carried on a randomly, way too much. Like, <laughs> um, the scores of Roy and Bester are outrageously similar to what they scored against India, actually. Against India, I believe Roy got 61. Against New Zealand, he got 60. Besto got 111 against India and 106 against um, New Zealand. Besto's got a bit of the Aaron Finch wobbles going on. Gets, um, gets to the triples and can't go on. But it was a really, really, really high-quality spell from Nisham. And I, I thought Santner as well had a had a good run. And he Santner, in the end, um, was able to snag Stokes, who looked like the key to bringing the innings home for England. Yeah, when they when they get the kind of opening partnership that they did between Besto and Roy, like we know what England are capable of in the one day arena, when those two get a good start, and for New Zealand to restrict them to three hundred and five was very impressive. Well, I think they showed. Sorry to like cut mm. you off there. I think they showed that there, there really is just a lot of hype, but not necessarily a lot of mileage or runs on the board per se for the Morgan Butler. You know that everyone, mm, particularly mm. Joss Butler, I think he seems like a very lovely man. I think he's a very calm and softly spoken vice captain for the English team. Really, I think 
has not fired at all this World Cup. And I actually think England have a lot of worrying takeaways from this well, game. Well, maybe the, the fact in, that, in the batting, the, the fact that Butler hasn't fired is maybe concerning because everyone keeps talking about how capable he is of making things happen. And um, uh, I've, I've got to talk about Jimmy Neesham's bowling. Like, I, think he's been, I think he's been fantastic for New Zealand's yeah. head and shoulders, the, their player of the tournament thus far. Oh, oh actually, I mean, it's got to be Kane Williamson for me. I, no, I would say Nisham because the situations that he's coming. Sure, Williamson really brought it home. Um, you know, got got them out of a got them has gotten them out of strife oh, a couple like, of times. Not just out of strife, but like from four for forty kind of scenarios. Actually, scoring no. unbeaten hundred and fifties. Upon reflection, <laughs> it's good. It's good. To as do good as Nisham's been. I would actually say no. Hang on, I think Williamson. I think Nisham just. I'm so biased towards him because of his Twitter activity, and if if. I've said this before on the potty, but everyone, you should sign up to Twitter just so you can follow Jimmy Nation and get get out of that by him because he replies to everything and it's beautiful. New Zealand are also missing Lockie Ferguson, who's probably been, other than Nation, the best pace bowler for New Zealand. And, um, I mean, yeah, oh, there's not much more to say. They're, England scored 305 and it, it looked like a lot. It should be said, New Zealand, I think they got bundled out for 180 odd. Yeah, 186. And... Some of the dismissals were absurd. Well, I, yeah, some tough luck here. Like so, Kane, Kane Williamson. I'll, I'll just describe it for for the listeners. Mark Woods bowling. Um, Ross Taylor's up the other end. He just hits a kind of um, nondescript straight drive. Result, classic. I, it's happened to me once, and I just <laughs> I'll, actually I'll tell that story in a sec. But it brushed Woods' hand, and they had to look at it. Like it just tipped. Like just. Rush past one of his Did fingers. Did I just get snicker on the yeah. finger? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> see, see if that will work. Um, yeah. But it, it, Williamson run out the non-strikers in. And then Ross Taylor, just one of the dumbest calls going for a second. Unnecessary second. And, and, and as soon as he, yeah, as soon as he left his ground, it was just like running to the gallows, essentially. Can I just say the, the, the time that I did get run out at the non-strikers end, um, it was in the under 10s. Um, and our coach was this super angry year four teacher and he like had a, um, I remember this game so well. We got bundled out so cheap against whoever we we're playing against. And um, uh, he, the, the coach had this angry rant at like the whole team. And he was like, you should all be ashamed of yourselves except for the guy who scored like 30 or 40 and me. And, yeah, well, and, there's, there's and I was like, yeah, yeah, it's not my fault. Like, it's everyone else's fault that we suck, not me. So That's, that's some brutal. And, and I'm sure Kane Williamson, that's all he can think about, just how everyone else in New Zealand sucks at batting. <laughs> <laughs> that's all well, he's thinking about. If they, like, if they're, because so New Zealand will, will probably, will they most likely play Australia, yeah, I think, in the semifinals? An Antipodean semifinal. If we beat South Africa, which that could be a very, very interesting game given the last last you know finals scenario well, in which yeah. we had the Tasman and game. New Zealand have a very successful record in in uh, World Cup semifinals. <laughs> but if it does come together for the Kiwis at the top of the order, like they like I stand by what I said at the start of the of this whole season that that I thought they would be the winners of the entire thing because of the potential that's there. Yeah. And this, this I no longer think they will win this. I, I I really am finding it hard to look past India right now. But you know, like it's don't count them out. But part of me just feels a bit frustrated that they're going to be there because I don't think they've deserved it. Let's move on. Um, 
and Chris Gale bowed out of the World Cup in um, uh, non-interesting circumstances, Absolutely really, against, against Afghanistan. Did more with the ball than he did with the yeah. bat. <laughs> um, he just looks tortured yeah, at the he, crease. Well, he just is used to... Like, here's the thing. When he was good... He would he would go out and maybe two two in every three times. He'd see, he, his approach has always been the same, which is just go from ball one, like just try and dominate with strength the pace bowlers, and that used to happen two in every three times maybe. Now it happens like one in every five one times. Every, oh, one in and every his ten eyes maybe. and his re, refle- reflexes and stuff have, have left him. <laughs> It, it, yeah. It's a bit like Aragog a little bit yeah. in, in Chamber of Secrets, you know? Like, it still looks very intimidating. Still still commands yeah, He does command. He's, he's got an aura, but I suspect that's more about his kind of personality <laughs> and his, his on-field yeah. escapades. I mean, he's, exactly. He's certainly not blind by any, by, <laughs> by, by any means. I mean, maybe that's what those sunnies are. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah, look. There's not a lot to say here, but let's talk about Afghanistan for a second. And, and I just want to, I just want to take it back. I just want to take it back to episode one of our series, in which an emboldened Alistair Belling declared, I would say overconfidently, he would say, relying on rock solid evidence, I'd certainly say overconfidently, declared that Afghanistan's were the dark horses of the 2019 <laughs> Cricket World Cup. Yeah, you fast forward a few yeah. months and we've had, we've had, I think it's Najibullah Zadran sent home for undisclosed disciplinary issues. Just for, you, here's the thing about Najibullah, so did, right? Did they have a change of captain mid-tournament as well? I don't even I know. I feel like they might have. They, I mean, they, what, no, no, what happened, I think what happened was they had a change of captain just before the World Cup. Askar As, As, Afghan, I think Which is the name. Which is the best name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just called Alastair Australia. Australian. <laughs> it's unreal. It shows, it shows the patriotic streak yeah, yeah. in South Asian um, countries. Was the captain prior to the World Cup, but I think, I mean, get this, I think f- like fitness reasons ruled him out like for being too fat. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, look at this. Too, too much hummus in the restaurants of Kabul <laughs> going on with the, that team at the and moment. And here's the thing, like it just, it never came together. That, that, like, <laughs> it just looks like every time they, like based on the evidence from this time, every time they've done well against... Um, like I, I want to say full members, but um, longer standing full members. It looks like it must have just been a fluke, honestly. Like they they <laughs> they swing and occasionally it comes off. Well, well, sometimes they play some amazing. Like it's like it's like your mate. It's it's like playing FIFA when you're drunk. Like this isn't something I've got heaps of experience in, but from the limited experience that I do have <laughs> in it, you're terrible until you do something outrageously brilliant yeah. and no one expects you to ever yeah. be able to have that ability. And like the, there's talent there. They just need to learn how to apply themselves at the international level. Yeah, They never rolled over. It's and a, that's and that's something I will give to them. That's there's true. No, there's that's, no donying. That's why that. That's why it's an yeah. E, not an F for me. Look, for, for me, Afghanistan's in excess in that like oh. apparently they were good at some point. But when they bow out, they're, su- they're supporting uh, they're supporting Eskimo Joe well. at like the Fremantle <laughs> Social Club, and so it's I, it's it's a bit odd. I'd, su- I'd suggest the only difference between um, Afghanistan and In Excess is that unfortunately external political forces did tear <laughs> us apart. <laughs> in, the, yeah, oh. in the case of, and that is an unbelievable uh, place to 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 move on to our next segment. So I mean. I'll, it, it, it was an ironic game, I think, Af- Afghanistan v. the West Indies, because 
they are. T- they are. Sorry, we're, we're a bit distracted because there there is some video gaming going on. In, we're in the room where we're recording this pod, and it's very entertaining. Um, it was an ironic sort of last game because those two did meet in the World Cup qualifiers. And, you know, by all accounts, Mm. West Indies maybe shouldn't have even been there in the first place, given the new format. And we're actually going to take a moment now to dive a little bit deeper into the nature of qualifying for the World Cup with our next guest. Uh, We'll introduce him in in just a moment. But essentially, the the winds of change abound in ODI cricket. Once again, I would argue. So we're about to move into something called an o- the ODI Super League, mm. which is going to essentially be a four-year competition that's going to set up who qualifies for the next World Cup, which is in which is in uh, India in 2023. Um, could you essentially describe it? Remember the Test Championship? Yeah, that never happens. But yeah, there's, well, lots of, te- there's lots of Wikipedia pages te- on it. Technically, it's about to happen. Um, could you describe this as the equivalent of the Test? championship absolutely if anything it's like the road to the fifa world cup it, it's yeah. essentially a whole bunch of teams 32 nations i believe in all and there's some there's some real alt you know people co- coming into the equation here you know nigeria's having a crack japan japan's having a crack yeah oman's having a crack nepal's having a crack which i'm very very excited about the netherlands you know who and it's frustrating because india 2023 is going to be a 10-team tournament, which is infuriating. And again, it just feels like cricket is continuing to sit on its colonial backside and and shoot itself in the foot. I think all you've got to do is look at like the Rugby World Cup, for example, to see how effective investment in other teams can be. But rather than continue on this hobby horse, we're going to play you now an interview that uh, the two of us conducted a couple of days ago. And I would say it's probably the interview... I personally am, at least, am the most proud of doing this entire year and especially for this podcast, for the sheer just amazing potential that you realise cricket has. Well, this is the thing. This, um, talking to our friend Tim Cutler, uh, is his name, who's the host of Emerging Cricket. I, I mean, my eyes were just Which opened. Is a podcast. Uh, yeah, the host of the podcast and the website, Emerging Cricket. My eyes were opened as to like how big the world of cricket is, how big the world of cricket could be yeah, and why there are so many people and why the big players are just stuffing that up at the moment. So sit back, relax and enjoy what is, I honestly think probably the most informative thing that has ever been said on this podcast. (laughs) All right, Al, our next guest is someone who's going to have, I think a really interesting perspective on, this World Cup and just uh, having kind of read a bit about what he does and, and heard his show as well, I think he's going to have a really interesting perspective on all things cricket today. And we're really looking forward to chatting to Tim Cutler, who uh, is the ex-CEO of Hong Kong Cricket, of all places, and now um, one of the hosts of Emerging Cricket, which is a cricket podcast concerned with and talking about cricket in um nations where it's an emerging sport mate thanks so much for coming on the show and could you just tell us a little bit about yourself what you did at hong kong cricket and and what you do now well geez where do i start there i think uh like any kid growing up in though i'm originally from sydney although now i'm based in brisbane but um, i think my mum told me at about age seven i started getting obsessed with cricket i think that's where all my attention span went sitting in front of the tv watching test matches because it definitely wasn't at school but uh, fell into marine insurance of all things and that uh, ended up taking me to hong kong in 2013 
but not before I'd spent a couple of seasons playing cricket in the UK and played all my grade cricket at eastern suburbs in Sydney. And it just seemed to be right time, right place. Hong Kong had come up the ladders of the emerging cricket sort of divisions and they needed a, a CEO uh, where they had got to one day international status had almost made the World Cup, had made and beaten Bangladesh at a recent T20 World Cup. They uh, needed someone with a bit more of a business background to bring everything together and to put a strategy together. And I, as I said, right time, right place, um, switched over from my insurance role to being the first ever CEO of, of Cricket Hong Kong as we became and led a transformational strategy, rebrand, came up with the idea of the, the Hong Kong T20 Blitz um, and also right. saw the team make another T20 World Cup, which was exciting. We didn't do too well in India, but that was an experience in itself. Um, I left after two years and started doing some consulting on some of the new T20 leagues that have popped up around the world. But uh, since then, I've fallen in love and uh, moved back to Brisbane and have uh, <laughs> slipped back into the insurance world whilst uh, also starting Emerging Cricket, as you'd mentioned, which is a website podcast and sort of a bit of a movement uh, collective of volunteers around the world covering the game sort of outside its traditional centres. So that's, uh, I think that's me in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds awesome. Like s something that I didn't realise before I really began reading about, you know, for lack of a better word, the, the minnow nations in past World Cups was just how many countries play cricket. Like, like even just, you know, reading the story of, um, I think it was like the Netherlands going into the 2003 World Cup and reading that, you know, oh, they knocked off Denmark and Italy in this league. And it's like, wow, I didn't know any of these countries played the game. And, you know, obviously looking for your Twitter, there's so many that are playing I'm curious, um, Tim. Like when you went to when you went to Hong Kong, where was the game at at the time? Like, and how do you go about building the game of cricket when there's not already an established audience there? Well, I'll start off by saying that I was in a very similar situation to you. I think, as you can see on Twitter, and especially with some of the threads you've probably seen recently about Statsgate, shall we call it, in Mali with the the ladies' team, and mm. the, you know, it, it, there there is a lot of Let's call it emotion out there. But I, when I moved to Hong Kong, I knew very little about cricket outside the full member nation. So I can completely understand someone not knowing it. So it's not a matter of me getting angry that nobody knows about it because I think that's half the problem, that cricket doesn't do a very good job of, of it selling itself. But we can get to that um, oh. later on, no oh, doubt. But getting, getting <laughs> it sounds like, I've, yeah, it's like I've, I can hear positive noises there. But um Getting to Hong Kong, it's been played in Hong Kong basically as long as cricket's been a sport. So it was in 1841 that the British Army said, we're going to put a cricket ground next to every British Army barracks to keep the guys fit. And that was what really started cricket as a sport. And it was 1842 that the Second Opium War finished in Hong Kong and when the British took Hong Kong from China. So cricket's been played in Hong Kong as long as cricket's really existed um, but it really remained an expat sport and it's really only been I'd say the last few decades where Hong Kong has changed a lot with a lot of migration from South Asia where those numbers have got bigger and bigger and where the energy in the game and actually p potentially turning into a, a professional sport ha has sort of changed where the talent has been there and Hong Kong had played in ICC trophies and, and done quite well you know Dermot Reeve for example who played the 92 World Cup final was actually born and bred in Hong Kong and played for Hong Kong before moving back to the UK you could say where his family was from but there's been cricket being played there for quite a while the, the issue has been 
since handover um, in 97, and I guess it's a very topical point at the moment with everything that's going on in Hong Kong, but a lot of the old cricket grounds were within army barracks as well. So now that they've been handed back to the People's Liberation Army of, of China, um, it's, it's fair to say they, they're not employing groundsmen there to look after the cricket grounds anymore. So I think... I think whilst cricket had a bit of a lead in time to know that was coming, it could have done a lot more work, I think, retrospectively looking at what could have been done to protect against it. But look, there was engagement levels of cricket was was great there, but I think it was great in the sense that it was played and understood by the expat uh, Western community, but it never really got into the Chinese community. And you can see probably from my Twitter and other news that Hong Kong does that there's a specialist, I should say a focused uh, Chinese men's team to help um, grow the the game within the Hong Kong Chinese community there. And the ladies team, uh, the women's team is basically half Chinese anyway, so you don't need any special initiatives there um, because it's been a bit of a hero of the cricketing program that um, a lot of the talented ladies there are are, are Hong Kong Chinese so look there's an established market there but it's just not enough there's fewer than a thousand senior cricketers across uh, male and female and there's only three turf grounds so to think that when Hong Kong beat Bangladesh in 2014 in front of a stunned Chittagong ground that there's probably 600 men playing the game in the country, maybe 40 at a level that could be selected for a national team, beating mm. a country of 260 million people who are mm. cricket mad. Mm. It's unreal. Mate, um, to kind of um, broaden things out a bit, there's been a lot made about this particular edition of, and, and to bring it to the, to the World Cup, we are a World Cup podcast. Um, there's been a lot made about um, the decision to reduce the World Cup to a 10-team format. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means for emerging nations in terms of um, their, um, I guess, dreams for, for playing cricket on, on the international stage? Well, there's a short question with a, a very long answer, but yeah. it sort of goes back to what um, I, I don't know. This is basically, uh, you know, what the, a lot of the podcast has been been about. I listened to your interview with James McCollum as well, and and his mm. um, response as well. You know, emerging cricket nations are funded in a majority by the ICC with two tranches: one on off-field criteria and one on on-field criteria. Yeah. And that on-field criteria is really driven by. 50 over cricket and that's where a lot of the funding is um, linked to and it's the, seen as the pinnacle of the sport and recently T20 cricket has been named as the growth vehicle of cricket and how it's going to grow across the world but 50 over cricket is still what most countries have been set up to play and that's starting to change. So what it means for countries who are looking for sponsorship or government support uh, talking about well you're not in the World Cup um, why are we going to fund you for a game that you're not going to get anywhere close to a, a global tournament is, is, is a big thing. Um, but uh, in the beginning, I guess, when the 10-team t- World Cup was discussed, it was connected to a larger funding pot and the conversation was, well, we may be getting a lot more money and taking a lot more for ourselves, i.e. Big 3 takeover and even after the, the governance reforms. But a lot of that more money that was supposed to flow through um, on the flip side of, of only having 10 teams of the World Cup, that, that money hasn't necessarily been um, forthcoming to the levels that was, was promised. So I think there's, there's a bit of a bit of frustration there across those nations where, well, if you were taking away the opportunities for us in 50 over cricket and there's less money, what's actually in it for us? And then it, if you remember, the T20 World Cup was out to four years 
as well. And that's just been pulled back to having a T20 World Cup every two years. So hopefully that's a tournament that's going to be extended more and more to give exposure to these nations. Um, but like I said at the moment, the funding's all linked to 50 over cricket. So the, I would say there's a little bit of uncertainty in the world sort of beyond those 10 nations as to where that is going to be linked. But if I can sort of just take that 50 over cricket to the next step and what that will mean beyond the 10-team World Cup, there's the 13-team ODI Super League that starts not long after the World Cup that the Netherlands are in, which I think is a, a great initiative and for the first time there'll be a global league table um, as opposed to a rankings table that I don't think people really trust that much with the um, calculations that you know nobody can really understand but there'll be a, a league table that will determine who's going to make the next World Cup and who, who falls back into to qualifying and whilst 2023 is still down as a 10-team World Cup you know, who knows if the ICC go back and look at this World Cup and look at World Cups before it as to whether they're going to continue with that format. I think I think it's really interesting that you touched on that the, the cash hasn't exactly, you know, come in, in in bigger droves that like like the ICC expected. And I know a lot has been made about the research um, that shows that you know there there is more viewership when you know the associate nations are playing, and also the games are closer as well. Like just on on average. Um, I'm just pulling that statistic from another podcast that I heard. But, I mean, I think it makes sense, especially like you alluded to, if associate nations can push those international teams all the way to the... Sorry, those full member teams all the way to the edge, um, you know, even though having a vastly smaller amount of games per year, I think that's a really, really telling thing. Like, what could happen if those nations had those same amount of games? And, you know, one example is Bangladesh having their tours cancelled all the time when they're trying to come to Australia... So I'm curious as to um, when, you know, if it's T20 or ODI or whatever, when you're trying to build up the profile of those teams to be competitive in things like the ODI Super League, for example, how much, like, how do the fixtures go about being sort of set up when the associate teams are playing each other? And how many, how much cricket would an associate nation play per year as opposed to, say, like, a lower-ranked full-member team like Sri Lanka, for example? No, very good question. Um, I'll just touch on what you mentioned uh, halfway through your question there about the games being more competitive. It's funny enough, we did the numbers, and Nick Skinner, who's part of Emerging Cricket, went through every one-day international played since 2015 and also all of those in World Cups before, but specifically since 2015, matches between associates and full members have actually more often been competitive than full member versus full members mm. and what the numbers have basically told us it's not about membership status that determines competitive matches it's actually rankings difference and once you get to a rankings difference of more than three or four the chances of an upset falls off a cliff and so what do you do to get a global event you have smaller groups that front end those one-sided matches and then you move into tournament play where there's sudden death and increasing stakes and that's where i think we've seen a perfect storm almost in the reverse in this world cup where we're getting to the end now and we're potentially going to have a week of almost dead rubbers because the numbers of those ranking difference and expected matches have worked out basically as predicted even with a couple of upsets rather than being cleverer with the scheduling and having those potential one-sided games out of the way and playing two games a day. Uh, we could have had a 20-team World Cup, and if anybody is on Twitter and listening, get on to following Idle Summers. He's got a 20-team World Cup that he's actually been 
running through his simulator and you know the Netherlands and Nepal got through to the next round and whatnot and yeah. into exciting knockouts um, this is what a, a global event should be I think you know and I'm not saying that cricket should should copy football but you know in terms of knockouts once you're out of the group it seems to work for the other global sports so to answer your question about um, international cricket being played and, and how it's scheduled um, bef- before this new um, cycle, which will have the Cricket World Cup Super League and the Cricket World Cup League Two. That means there'll be 20 teams playing ODIs. There was the World Cricket League Championship. Now, we'll just stay on white ball cricket now, which will keep it simple. Yeah. Uh, and that was an eight-team competition played over that same, so two-and-a-half period, two-and-a-half-year period. So you would you would play each team in a in a two-game series, either home or away. So you would end up playing seven rounds over those two and a half years. And along alongside that, there was also the Intercontinental Cup, which is, or was, unfortunately, um, it looks like it's not going to continue, but that was a four-day first-class championship as well. Um, and without getting too confusing, because Ireland and Afghanistan were in the last one, but basically the top eight associate teams were in that. So if you space those seven series out over two and a half years and splice in a T20 World Cup qualifier and also a, a Cricket World Cup qualifier if you're getting there, that's how much cricket is being played by the top associate nations. And then below the World Cricket League Championship, there was World Cricket League Division 2 and all the way through down to Division 5 and 6. And that they were six-team kind of a week and a half tournaments determining uh, the top two moving up and the bottom two going back through the um, through all the divisions and that's how countries could move up and that's how Afghanistan um, famously moved up from playing against teams like Japan and Cayman Islands all the way up to um, the top table and now to full membership and they've done that since the early 2000s so that theirs is the story of meritocracy in the way that they they've played basically everyone in world cricket within the last 20 years to get where they are it's it's um sounds like there's a fairly full schedule then for um associate nations what what do you think their focus is going to be? And um, you, maybe you are a prophet. Do you have a sense of what who's going to be the nef- next Afghanistan? Is there another country that that you can see kind of starting to really rise through the ranks? Especially given there's a it seems like there's more and more infrastructure in place and more and more kind of goals to set. I guess in terms of where where to be heading for the future. No, I can definitely definitely name a couple, but. Um, Going back to how, um, what the focus is going to be, I mm. think that is the the changing light of cricket. I think there's always been a lot of 50 over cricket that's been played in a lot of these nations, uh, and T20 cricket has obviously got more popular as yeah. as it has across the world with everyone having less time to to give. But now the focus will start moving more towards T20 cricket because for those countries outside the the world's top 30 now um, in the new the new structures that'll mean that there's no actual ICC organized 50 over cricket or be T20 cricket for the rest of the world um, feeding into those those leagues as well so there'll be more and more international focus on the T20 game and that'll be different to how it's ever been before and it's not that T20 cricket hasn't been played it's always been played there but I think we'll see that start to change even more and you know I'm not sure if you guys remember the piece that James Sutherland was quoted in a couple of years ago where he said that you know, the BCCI make as much money for Indian cricket media rights from one T20 as they do from one test match. I think the, the writing is on the wall there in yeah. terms of the way that the 
the the world is moving there and, and, and what will become the, the focus but i think like i said there's a bit of i wouldn't say confusion but i think there's a lot of head scratching as to where these associate nations or ones that are trying to to get up the associate ladder will uh, will, will focus because how and what is their best opportunity to get themselves on the world stage and if there are a world t20s or t20 world cups every two years now and they extend out to 16 teams or hopefully more then that's a simple answer and then the other big five ringed elephant in the room is olympic cricket and if cricket is in the olympics in 2028 in la as we hope um, even if it's a, an eight team event in both male and female events that what that means across the world example brazil have already been told that they will be getting and I, I might be getting my numbers wrong here but it's about half a million euro a year at the snap of the finger as soon as cricket is confirmed as being a, an olympic sport and there are stories like that across the world wow. that unlock uh, unlock funding into olympic programs um, that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise um, so th- that is what it could mean in an associate world it would it, be a game changer because what you imagine here is cricket is really well funded beyond football cricket's the best funded sport in terms of the development coming from the global body uh, rugby's uh, not far behind and they do it differently but cricket's number two there um, easily and so the icc do a great job the development team are excellent and when people talk about the icc you know the icc is many different things there's not just one thing i just wanted to sort of say that so it doesn't sound like it's all icc bashing but what the olympics can mean is that to, access all of this this almost free money that doesn't come from icc media rights because all of the 2.2 billion dollars the icc will distribute over this eight-year period all comes from media rights sold for the global events and it all has to go somewhere paying icc wages paying for events giving 400 million of that to, the, to india hundreds of millions to all the other the other nations and then the rest to associates so the money that can be an un, um oh, unhinged i should say will access to those nations um, from those nations budgets that will change cricket and then also the commercial opportunities that that brings forward as well so that's where i think olympic cricket when it becomes a focus will be will be great for the sport uh, in terms of the, the next nations off the off the rank well next cabs off the rank shall we say um nepal uh, won't be surprising to have the, the talent of a, as a Sandeep as, as we've seen play in the BBL and, and every T20 league around the world. I think he's played in more T20 leagues in the last two years than anybody else. And a little tidbit there is that his first overseas T20 league was the uh, Hong Kong T20 Bits Blitz back in 2016 yeah. when he played along alongside Michael Clark for the Kowloon Cantons and one uh, former CEO was also in that team though he, although the game that he got selected in he, it was rained off so uh, I've got a very lonely um, one T20 or one other T20 on my uh, Crick Info profile but uh, <laughs> we're not here <laughs> we're not here to talk about me but uh, look um, Nepal won't be a surprise for, for those of you Google Nepal cricket and you see full stadiums um, the uh, TU uh, University ground in in Kathmandu, there will hold 20,000 people. And when they host their first ODIs in, in January, that will be packed. Um, so there's your sort of most, your biggest interest market. Uh, Papua New Guinea has the most people playing cricket across um, associate countries. They've got yeah. over 200,000 people in cricket programs um, because of their junior um, quick cricket 
um, initiatives they've got across the country. Um, so if they can turn that into talent and bring that through, then I can't see why we don't see PNG on a global scale soon. But looking at, let's call them sleeping giants. And look, everybody talks about the USA and China, so I'm not going to go into depth there. You know, you only need to Google the USA T20 League that's just been announced with a billion dollars behind it. But I was really happy to see Nigeria uh, qualify for the Under-19 World Cup. If they get their ducks in a row, they have almost 200 million people. Japan have just qualified for the Under-19 World Cup as well. And we all know what happened when Japan beat South Africa. They went from having fewer than 100,000 people watching uh, to having about 30 million. One in two uh, Japanese watching um, watching rugby the next the next day or the next game so it just shows that from a, a patriotic point of view what what yeah. could happen there if if japan gets behind it and indonesia is another country they've got over sixty thousand people playing as well so look nepal and png uh for numbers and, and support in the nations and in terms of some of those uh as giant population bases uh, nigeria and indonesia i think are the other ones to look out for but i think in, in the next few years if usa get there get their act together they've only just had their their association readmitted as a member of the icc and funny enough nepal is actually still suspended as a member of the icc if they can get their act together off the field um there's no reason to see them up um and and beating the likes of afghanistan Ireland, and zimbabwe soon either yeah you can see some big things happening there <laughs> i was in png actually myself not too long ago and uh with the humidity i was thinking if they if they do um compete at a higher level i've always thought they'd be good against the swinging ball personally <laughs> listen um oh, absolutely might... <laughs> that's what they're used to aren't they yeah <laughs> so um, there's plenty of moisture in the air there mate it's um really exciting to hear um what's going on in all these countries and i think it sounds like the story is not all doom and gloom um which is kind of i think what we hear as a, as a top line but it's fantastic to just hear your perspective on um where things are heading in in all these other countries and um, I think cricket is brilliant in many in many respects, and uh, I think one of those is the ways that um, in emerging nations cricket just can bring people together, and it brings people together around these other countries as well. So it's fantastic. I think we'll um, we'll wrap things up there. Um, you can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim Cutler, or you can follow his podcast and the website Emerging Cricket. There's plenty of awesome stuff there, mate. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. It was really good to, to chat to you both. Well, thank you very much to Tim Cutler for coming on the show. We're so glad uh, to be able to talk to someone with his perspective on the world of cricket. The, the, the Olympics thing is... Unreal, It's right? crazy. Like, I really, really want to see how the Rio de Janeiro swing bowlers line up. <laughs> I really want to see the Papua New Guinean seamers hooping it in like you know the the kokoda yorkers the, <laughs> literally the kokoda grenades the, the toe crushes <laughs> it's oh my goodness the, the 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 potential is enormous especially hearing stuff about mm, mm. you know japan and and the potential for like that market it gave me shivers mm. it's it's huge and you know i pray that we see something crazy happen here it, it would be so so great not only for like cricket in those countries but i think for world cricket in general Mate, let's just quickly wrap around the last three games of the regular stage. We're finally coming to the end. It's and it, huge. it is essentially three dead rubbers. All that's on the line here is who comes first and who comes second. England confirmed third. I believe um, 
that's correct with India sitting on 13 and Australia on 14, England back on 12 points. So as we mentioned, Pakistan are playing Bangladesh tonight and Pakistan have opted to bat in breaking news. Oh, so the, the so dream survived. <laughs> the dream's still alive. Oh, um, man, if Pakistan opted to bowl there... You know, you may as well just start the match fixing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's, um, I'll give you some again. numbers. If they score 350, they need to bowl Bangladesh out for 39. If they score 400, they need to bowl Bangladesh out for 84. And if they score 450, they need to bowl Bangladesh out for 130. And I think it's... I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to talk about it. It's not worth it. <laughs> Don't get my hoods up. If Pakistan get the 400... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's going, we're going up. Oh, yeah, yeah. man. Like, the thing is, it's over, like, straight away or, or not at all. Like, I yeah. just, I will let off fireworks. Yeah. Like, I will legally <laughs> purchase fireworks. Okay, anyway, back in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, you know, if, you know, listeners, you you know what's happened in that game by now. If Bangladesh, sorry, if Pakistan have been able to get past Bangladesh by one of those margins and leapfrog the Palms. Sorry, leapfrog, uh, New, leapfrog New Zealand. I will, by the time you hear this, have bought <laughs> the, 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 a, a Pakistan kit online and will be wearing it for every subsequent game for the rest of this tournament. Oh, I love it. Uh, the, uh, we've got a double header up tomorrow night. Uh, tonight, as you're listening, I guess, if you're listening on Saturday the 6th, with Sri Lanka facing India to round off India's trio of Asian opponents, I think the last three games have been last to start, one of the last to finish. I mean, you know, mm. the best thing, the best thing that could happen here if India lose, that means they'll probably play New Zealand. No, no, England. No. England have they they can't drop below England because they're they're one point ahead. Um, it's about it's all about momentum really for these teams, and uh, there was there was suggestions that they mix up their. 11s, but no, they're just going to try and take momentum into Keep the semis. The going. And um, so the case is if, if England and India both, if, sorry, if India and Australia both win or both lose, then they'll remain first and second, Australia on top. If India win and Australia lose, then the, that's the only interesting scenario in terms of the table, in which case India will jump to first and get to take on the Kiwis in the semi-final while Australia will take on England. Now, my big question is, the, so the final match of the group stage of the home and away season for World Cup 2019 is Australia v South Africa. Mm. Who do you bowl if you're Justin Langer going into this game? I, I think there are three undroppable bowlers and a spinner in the Australian team at the moment. You cannot drop Mitchell Stark. But You but, cannot drop but, Jason Berendorf. But, but, but do, you, do you rest Mitchell Stark? Oh. I, I do, mean, you, do you risk aggravating those niggles? Because he's only played like 61 days or something. He's had an incredibly short like career in terms of mm. matches played because of his body. Here's the thing, though. I, I, don't, I think Australia left the rotation policy behind in about 2014. I don't think there's any chance they're going to drop Mitch Stark. Well, I mean, given the form he's in, I guess yeah. you don't want to risk the rhythm that he's exactly, got going, yeah. especially after you know a pretty ordinary summer that he's coming off to now be hitting his stride now. Yeah, I think maybe something I'd love to see Australia do in this game is to elevate Glenn Maxwell a bit mm, and just give mm, him a bit play, more play time. Him form. And and I would also potentially open with Steve Smith and try and give him Mate, a, big, a hit. Big calls. Well, I, can I, I just say? Can I give you some injury news by the way on the Australian front? Sean Marsh is out with a broken arm, ha- broken hand, broken arm. We're, 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 hey, we're, yeah. we're going to bring in, we're going to bring in Ollie just for a moment here. 
Well, you're talking about Maxwell and Cummins. Well, I was as building well. up. To, I was yeah, building yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maxwell in the nets, injuring, <laughs> breaking Marsh's arm, and I don't no, know what he's so Cummins broke yeah, Marsh's yeah, arm. Yeah. Cummins just bowling fire and Stark. I think, I think it's Cummins did uncom- both, didn't they? Uh, no, it was Cummins did one and Stark did another. I oh. think Stark gave Maxwell a knock on the wrist, right? I think so. And, and they both is, went is to all. Is a doubt. Um, Sean Marsh has been replaced by Pete Hanscom in the squad. Oh. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a huge. I mean, you know, rough for Pete Hanscom, given that Alex Carey has been an absolute revelation. Potentially Australia's best player. I would I would absolutely agree with that. On that note, let's um let's finish that one up. We'll see you in the semi-finals, listeners. It's been a fantastic World Cup, even if things ended up with a kind of fairly predictable top four in the semis. But it does mean we should see some fantastic games. And until then, my name's Miles Cade. We'll catch you next time. My name's Alistair Belling. See you.